listening to the Sports Rehab Experts Podcast. We sit down with some of the most highly regarded experts in the field of rehab, from physical therapists, athletic trainers, and much more. We dive into what makes them tick and hear about the lessons they have learned along their journey. Come listen to what these experts have to say. And welcome inside to another episode of the Sports Rehab Experts Podcast. Today, we have Adam Loyacano, Director of Rehabilitation for the Phoenix Suns. Adam, welcome in. Hey, thanks, Chase, for having me on. It's looking forward to uh, catching up. I know we've been putting off it for a while, so uh, just excited to chat it up with you and talk shop. All right, Adam. Um, kind of give an introduction about who you are, where you grew up, and uh, kind of what got you involved in physical therapy. Sure thing. Uh, so by formal education and training, uh, doctor of physical therapy, also a sports performance coach, studied exercise science in my undergraduate. So I had some background on the you know, strength and conditioning, performance, physiology side. Um, current role, director of rehab, Phoenix Suns, also held roles with the Atlanta Hawks on the rehab side. But before then, started more in the performance and sports science world, uh, working in professional men's and women's soccer, MLS and NWSL. Uh, for several years. Uh, and before that, uh, was a uh, Division three college soccer coach. So really thought I was going to be a soccer coach coming out of school, really enjoyed the coaching piece, really enjoyed the sport of soccer, but then realized I don't want to spend all my weekends recruiting, especially on holidays. So needed something a little bit more long-term and sustainable uh, for me. So that's kind of how I ended up where I am. Gotcha. So obviously you worked, you know, you coached in soccer, so you're obviously very passionate about soccer. Um, so kind of tell us a little bit more about your journey through soccer. I saw that you worked uh, for the New England Revolution. We actually had the uh, the current New England Revolution director of rehab. We had Eric on earlier. And then you said you talked about, um, we talked a little bit pre-show how you worked with the Pride. So kind of tell us a little bit more about your stops in each of those, uh, these, each of those places. Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I played college soccer at University of Maine. And that's kind of was my sport growing up after, you know, high school, really focused there. So that's kind of where the passion for that sport came in. Really just enjoyed playing it, played it at a, at a, at a decent level. I won't even say a high level, played at a decent level. Uh, and just really enjoyed the coaching bit, right? I started coaching youth soccer as early as 17. Like I started coaching my younger brother's soccer team when I was a senior in high school. So kind of helping him out. And I kind of carried that through uh, my college years, started coaching, uh, helping coaching the, you know, the women's soccer team at University of Maine, you know, another local college team. And in doing so, when I go home for the summers, I worked with the New England Revolution Youth Academy. And so as I grew from coaching youth soccer with their academy, and I learned a lot from them, and it was great being a part of a professional club and seeing how you really structure a training session, really that like how like tactical periodization and integrated periodization, it was awesome. And I really think that shaped kind of how I am today. And so as I graduated undergraduate from exercise science performance, I started taking on a lot of strength and conditioning and fitness principles within the youth academy. And then ultimately that led to an opportunity with the professional team where I was brought on primarily to help the head fitness coach manage some of the sports science and some of the tech that was, you know, at that time was a big boom in American sports, right? It was like early 2010s, a lot of sports science and tech and you know, that industry of data collection was very uh, new and exciting, I think, in the world of MLS. I don't know about the other sports at the time. So that's what led me to that opportunity and was there for several years in soccer. And then what led me to 
having a small stint with Orlando Pride, NWSL, was when I was in PT school. I did a rotation um, down in Orlando, and through my contacts of MLS, was able to kind of hook up with the women's team down there. And fortunately, my rotation schedule was a, you know, was a four-day rotation, so it gave me the other three days a week and even evening sessions to kind of go work with the women's team there, and that led to luckily being able to work with some of those girls, um, sorry, some of those ladies in the off season, some of their conditioning. And that's kind of how it rounded out my uh, soccer journey uh, from uh, PT school and undergrad. Gotcha. So after you, you know, you kind of grew in through the soccer, like working through the youth academies, working to the professional, both men's and women's, kind of tell us a little bit how you kind of eventually ended up with the Atlanta Hawks after that. Oh, by sure luck (laughs) and connection. I was actually, so, I mean, I was working professional sports as soon as I came out of undergraduate and I had played, you know, college soccer. I played, you know, at the time was before the academy soccer was there. It was, you know, called premier soccer. So I was gone a lot of weekends, you know, my teenage years and my twenties and missed out on a lot of just fun things that people in their teens and twenties do not saying I didn't have my fun by all means had some fun. Uh, but I was in a place of, you know, I was at this crossroads, like, do I want to continue working sports or, you know, I just got my PT degree. Do I want to kind of just work in the clinic and kind of have like your traditional, you know, maybe 10 to six, nine to five, whatever you want to call it. And so I was actually going to, I actually had a job and an apartment out in Seattle, um, to work in an outpatient clinic. But then the week before I was set to move, um, a couple phone calls happened. And next thing you know, I'm rerouting to Atlanta to go work with the Atlanta Hawks. And so. That's kind of just, I said, why not? You know, young, no kids, not tied down. You know, you talk to those that are in sports, you know, once you have a family, it's kind of changes things. So felt like the right opportunity at the right time in my life. And then that migrated to just another opportunity out here in Phoenix to, you know, Atlanta was primarily just working as a staff PT, whereas, you know, brought out here to really build and manage and create the return to play process and the rehabilitation process with the different departments that we have here, which I've really come to enjoy because it allows me to really cross multiple disciplines, right? So, you know, just use an example today, you know, we had, you know, a recent injury that we're managing and I'm having conversations with our orthopedic doc. We're having conversations with our coaches, head coach, assistant coaches, having conversations with dietitian, you know, tomorrow we'll have our team meeting and leading the conversation with performance staff, strength and conditioning, athletic training. So for me, it's really fun being in this role because I really enjoy a systems approach, really a systems view, like big picture, but then also where does my role fit? Where does other people's roles fit? And it's also been a challenge because you got so many voices, so many people that want to be a part of the process. Like, Hey, uh, who and when gets involved and ultimately what is the decision-making process and how do we get there? So it's been fun for me because I've had to flex a lot of different muscles, not just like the clinical and didactic side of things, you know, communication, teamwork, uh, understanding flow and processes and timing and just the inner the inner workings of let's just call it a large corporation that an NBA team is right and so when you were with the Hawks and you were you know a staff PT versus now your role where you're kind of at you know 30,000 foot view and you're kind of overseeing a lot of different parts of not just rehab process but like overall health of an entire NBA team um, what are some of the challenges you know clinically treating NBA players? And then what are some of the challenges, you know, just when you're kind of a bird's eye view, kind of overlooking the entire sports medicine scene? Yeah, I think clinically, 
in the NBA is just really challenging given the game density. You know, I, I think we are at best just managing a lot of stuff at one time. You know, right now and, you know, early preseason, early seasons, kind of quiet, you know, where guys are excited to be back in, you know, they want to, they want to get ahead. They want to build the routines and we want to make sure we have the right plan for them. But man, come, what is it, you know, December, January, February, right before all-star break, man, guys are, guys are beat up and they're breaking down, but you know, you miss two weeks in the NBA, that could be seven, eight games. And for some guys that aren't necessarily a starter or a rotation guy, that means a lot. So you really are trying to manage a lot of different things during the season and just get them out there to play. I think a healthy athlete is an oxymoron um, mm-hmm. for some in-season athletes, right? Like really, you know, health and performance in my end, like contradict each other. So when someone says they're healthy, you're like, nah, you're just, you're just not in pain and good enough to perform out there. Right. I think uh, ultimately those things, uh, like I said, yin and yang to each other. So I hope that answers your question as far as uh, kind of the clinical side of things that we there get it there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to talk about, you know, you've had two, you've had, you know, your toes in two different professional sports. And obviously, you're working with like the best of the best athletes in the world. But I guess culturally, and then I guess also clinically, what are the differences between working with professional soccer athletes, and then working with professional basketball athletes? Oh, man, I love this question. All right. Um, Let's just talk like, like honestly, culture, like culture, like get out of like the performance, but just general culture, right? Soccer is the world game. So you have this just diverse group of people, this diverse group of thoughts and beliefs existing in one locker room. And it's actually really cool. And I genuinely miss that side of soccer because you could have people from seven, eight different countries with different food, different beliefs, different just thoughts on the world. It just really just makes some cool conversations just hanging out with people. So I genuinely just miss that about soccer because it's such an international game. Even now more so now, like I think MLS has really expanded um, the international roster spots and the DP spots. So you're starting to see more South American, starting to see more Central American. And even you're gotten again, even guys in Europe, you know, coming over either the tail end of their career or kind of feeling, you know what, I'm young go play for LAFC or NYCFC and being a big city and explore the United States. I think you're really starting to see a more diverse culture as well. So, and then basketball, right? The demographic of basketball is the exact opposite. It's primarily American. You, you know, I would say every team probably has anywhere from one to three international guys, but for the most part, you're dealing with American based individuals that, come from a dive, you know, the States is huge. We can't forget the United States is massive. So it's kind of cool to see the cultural differences a little bit from certain regions of the States, but you're kind of dealing with a much more consistent uh, group of individuals. And then if you talk about, you know, the actual, like what we do and how we manage the athlete, I think the biggest thing we have to acknowledge is the sports are just totally different, right? You're, you know, from a space size, you know, a basketball court is what, 94 feet by, you know, 60, 60 feet. So not that large versus a soccer pitch, you know, they're variable, but, you know, 110 yards by maybe 65 yards. So given that, you know, like you're going to see different types of injuries, right? And soccer, I remember seeing, we saw a lot more, you know, hamstring, uh, calf groin, more like genuine, like soft tissue muscle injuries. And I think that's a product of just the aerobic nature of the sport versus in basketball, giving us more, 
uh, high intensity from acceleration deceleration component and playing on a harder surface, we see a lot more articular injuries. So we're seeing a lot more, you know, classic ankle sprains. You're seeing the gamut of knee injuries, chronic and acute, surgical and non-surgical. You're also seeing a lot of low back, uh, low back symptoms that you're trying to manage. So the sport dictates kind of not dictates, but it kind of suggests, Hey, like if these are the demands of the sport and this is what we're asking of the human body kind of lends itself to where the injuries or where the preventative measures have to come from. So to kind of elaborate more on the preventative side of things, well, if you know that soccer players are more prone to soft tissue injuries, you know, that's where you see a lot of Copenhagen, you see a lot of Nordics, you see a lot of just like ISOs of gastro, uh, like gastro complex working on that. But then they're also spending a lot of time in, let's just call it energy system development or fitness as a, as a broad term where it's very popular in soccer to monitor high speed running and you know how many meters per week are they covering in the very high speed zones. So I think it's because it's a running based sport, the fitness demands are different. Whereas in basketball, you're monitoring a lot more tendinopathy, right? A lot of preventative measures on tendinopathy, really just trying to help manage any sort of positional, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not deficits, but let's just call it positional postural change that these athletes may have given that they do so much jumping, right? You see a lot of increased lordosis. You see a lot of, you know, anteriorly rotated hips. So like, oh, like, how do I reverse that? How do I help manage that? How do I reduce tension off the low back given that they're jumping up and down all the time? So kind of summarize there, I hope, you know, if we, if we zoom out real quick and say, Hey, what are the cultural differences from the sport itself? But then the differences of the physical demands kind of starts the ball rolling as far as like where your plan of care and preventative measures and even your performance interventions are going to dictate how you manage the athlete. Right. So I wanted to go a little bit deeper into that, that point about, you know, working with uh, NBA athletes whose job is basically jump up and down for, you know, the entire game where they're, whether it's taking shots, whether it's trying to, to get rebounds or to get blocks. Um, you know, if an athlete has, you know, no injury to speak of, I know mean, that's kind of, uh, you know, kind of misguided, but like they have no pain per se, but you've, you know, kind of using all the KPIs that the NBA has and you notice they are, they might be at more of a risk for a, a, an injury. How do you got to get them to buy into doing it part of a rehab program to help kind of build that injury prevention if they have no pain to speak of at that moment? That's a great question. I think that's probably the hardest thing that we as an industry, let's say on the medical side, um, that's struggle with, but it's like you said, it's hard. Right? If, they're, if they're not feeling pain, if they're not in any discomfort, they're kind of, kind of asking, well, you know, if I'm good, why, why would I do this? And I think where I've had success is education with the athlete, but also working closely with performance staff, right? If they're, you know, the general consensus in most team settings, at least the ones that I've been a part of across a couple of different sports and a couple of teams is if the guy's healthy or the gal is healthy, um, get him in the weight room, right? Like let, let's induce low, let's build tissue quality. Let's, let's load this up. Let's try and make you a bit more robust. And I think if you have a good relationship with that staff, you can, you know, our staff is, you know, they, they want to know the injury history. They want to know like, Hey, like, what do you like, what do you think his archetype or what do you think his movement strategy may be advantageous for him to do in the weight room? What are things like you think maybe this isn't the best strategy for him to use in the weight room? So I think it's a great piece to build communication with the performance coach. But as a, as a, as a physical therapist in the NBA, I think where we do have success in those moments is educating why, say you think someone's more prone or why someone may be at risk for an injury. I think nine times out of 10, if the, if they understand 
and are willing to, or you can find a way to relate to them on that front, I think that's where you'll have success. I think if we just say, hey, you got a history of ankle sprains, we're going to do proprioceptive balance. Meh, you may not have the best success, but if you take the time to explain, hey, this is why we're going to do this. And this is, you know, based on some things that I've read in research or some success that I've had, I think these are some things that may help. But also asking the athlete too, like, I think that's one, I think that's something that's underrated is especially when you get to the professional level, given that they're not, you know, fresh out of college, like a one and done. A lot of these guys have been around, let's just say basketball, for example, like basketball is a big weight room is a big part of basketball culture in the NCAA and in the NBA. So guys that have either been in the league for a long time or have been in the NCAA system at a power five, they've probably been exposed to some pretty good stuff. So I think it's important to ask the athlete, Hey, you got a history of ankle sprains. What's helped you in the past to mitigate some of that? Hey, you have a history of tendinopathies. I know you're good right now. Like when have you noticed that they start to come on or when they has started to come on, what do you found success with? And I promise you, if the guy's been in the league for a while or the guy's been successful in the college level for a while, chances are they're going to kind of point you down the road you need to go to anyway. So I think you need to have an appreciation for the athlete's history and have that conversation with them rather than saying, hey, this is what I believe in. This is what we're going to do. Because in my experience, the more the athlete has say in it and feels like they're a part of the decision-making process, the more buy-in you're going to get, the more commitment you're going to get, the more intent and effort you're going to get. And ultimately that leads to a more successful plan. Right. And that kind of goes back to like the foundations of physical therapy practice, right? You know, the evidence, the three, the three pillars of evidence-based practice, like, right, you got to look at the research, but then also if the patient or the athlete is not bought in, it's probably not going to work because that's a huge component of, of that rehab process. So that kind of brings it all the way back to, you know, your first semester of PT school. Um, so I wanted <laughs> yeah. to go a little bit more in depth about that. So when you are having that conversation and you're trying to figure out, all right, this has helped you in the past, this has not helped you in the past. Are you having those conversations in the off season and then trying to implement that so they can kind of build a routine and add it to their current routine that they can keep up throughout the season or kind of how is that conversation getting started? I think at any point in the season, I don't think there's ever a bad time for it. I think, um, when they're ready, they're ready, right? Like what's the old adage? You're not ready to learn something until you're ready to learn something. Um, something like that, right? Like it's the same thing. If they're not ready for it, why, why, why fight an uphill battle? But when they're ready for it or, you know, you, you, you kind of do the things that they want, right? Like the guy wants to get on the table and use the, you know, the percussion guns or, you know, he wants to, he wants to do some sort of instrument assisted, you know, soft tissue, or he wants to get a stretch, man, like let's, let's do those. But then over time, as you build rapport and you have those kind of conversations that, Hey man, like, what do you, you keep coming in and ask me to stretch your left hamstring or you keep coming in and ask me like kind of mobilize your right ankle. Maybe there's something there too. Maybe we can do a little bit more. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know what? You're kind of right. Yeah, I'm open to it. It's kind of cool. So I think you just got to slow cook it. I think if, if you fast cook it and you, you're going too hard, too fast, you're probably going to lose them. Um, but to your original question of, you know, when's the right time? You'll know if you have that relation and re relationship and rapport with them. You know, I think the beauty of pro sports, you see them so frequently. So if you don't get it today, you don't get it tomorrow, you're – you're going to see them the next day and the next day and the next day and the week after and the week after. So not saying you should delay and procrastinate, but I think re respecting patience and time and acknowledging that you're not the only person, especially, you know, in the NBA, when you have, you know, staffs of anywhere from seven to 14 people, like they're being pulled in a lot of different directions and you have to just respect that 
I think collectively we as a team only have so many asks of that athlete. So picking and choosing when you're going to ask them to do something is comes with time and practice. I think if everybody's asking all the time, the athletes eventually going to be like, man, I got, I got seven different people asking me to do seven different things on every single day. I don't want to do any of them anymore. So eventually you'll see how they gravitate and work with them. So I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit more about your role now. So you are kind of working at the head of trying to collaborate between the athletic trainers, the dietitians, the team docs, between the coaches and GMs. What is the, I guess, ideal collaboration look like amongst all the different members of the sports medicine team? Something that makes it so much easier for everybody and make sure uh, the athlete gets the you know best care that they can possibly get. I think open, openness and transparency. Uh, I think probably the biggest lesson I've learned over the last three, four seasons is there's multiple solutions to one problem. And those solutions may come from the expert. They may come from the novice. Um, right. And what I mean by that is as long as there's trust and respect in the, in the workspace, I think you can collectively come to a decision that ultimately serves the athlete. Well, I've come to this space of trying to ask more questions to just learn different perspectives from not only the player, from the other practitioners, from the other doctors, even the coaches and GM, right. When you have former players that are in those positions, they offer insights that I'll never appreciate not having ever played in the NBA. So it's important to have those conversations too. But ultimately it's communication and listening. And I certainly have made mistakes of not doing enough of that and kind of just trying to take it all on myself. And I think I bet I was successful in those situations, but I don't think I was the best team player. I think I'm, I'm at my best when I'm integrating and collaborating with those around me because the reality is everybody's there for a purpose and a reason and has useful experience and useful skill sets and expertise. And not everyone's expertise or skill set is going to be needed all the time or going to be the most valuable every single time. But I think there's a time and place for everybody to implement something. And uh, I've just grown in that space to integrate more of those things and expand my repertoire of interventions and rehab and performance and return to play to a place where I feel very confident in what we do. And I think we've shown some to have some pretty good success and we've had some very good feedback from those above us as well. Gotcha. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more broadly about, you know, kind of your journey and your experiences. So you've worked both soccer and basketball. Um, what are some things that you learned in school along your journey in either of the sports that have kind of helped you helped prepare you to kind of do well in the job you have now? That's a great question. And a couple things that come to mind. Um, the first one, I think, you know, just looking back in, you know, my cohort in PT school and then seeing those that have been, you know, been successful in, let's say, the sports PT world. I think those that have either been exposed to performance training as an athlete um, or having spent time just as a coach, not necessarily a strength and conditioning coach, but a coach of a, of a dance team, a coach of a baseball or basketball team. Anyone that's been in those environments, I think you have an appreciation for, <clears throat> excuse me, what it means to be an athlete or be a part of a team. And I think that serves benefit when you get into this space, right? Because I think coaching in and itself helps you 
plan, helps you motivate, helps you manage a room, be adaptable, things that you don't necessarily learn in PT school or learn in a clinical setting. And I think that's where I've seen practitioners struggle when they try to make the jump from, say, a clinic to a team setting is that they're very different environments. They have a very different feel. And those, again, I've seen those that have been in those environments prior to have been more successful than those that haven't. Don't get me wrong. I've hired clinicians and I've hired non-clinicians, meaning people that worked in a clinic and people that want to work in team sports. Both have been successful, right? Both learn and grow in the environment. I just think those that um, have been there before tend to be successful quicker. Um, so that's one thing that comes to mind. Um, when I was in PT school, man, I took a lot of continuing education courses. I took, especially my third year, <clears throat> man, every school break I took, I was going somewhere. Um, a lot of weekend courses, you know, there were day seminars because you got, you got student discounts. So I think for me, I came out of school with a much more variety and toolkit than simply what PT school taught you, right? Like so many professors tell you, oh, the real learning happens when you get out of PT school. And my thought was, well, why am I going to wait till I get out of PT school, you know? Um, So I think that was important for any of your listeners that are, you know, students, you know, take advantage if, you know, financially speaking, you can, you can manage that. But also I think you know, play that student card and you may, you may be lucky and, uh, surprising how many practitioners would just be willing to, to chat with students given we're all there at one point. Um, so then I guess over the course of the career, oh man, I think, you know, where my mind goes is kind of two things. Like really, man, it's just like such like a systems based, you know, approach, you know, there's just so much, um, to the human system that I don't think it's, it's hard to speak in absolutes, but you have to commit to something at some level. Um, so I think that's where my mind goes. And I, I do believe in a lot of the asymmetrical influences that exist within the human body and how that affects performance or how that may manifest in an orthopedic exam. So I think those are some things that come to mind as I've grown from, you know, my professional career that I would say that influence or shape kind of my thought process. Gotcha. Yeah, I think that's a really unique answer. Um, so you know, something we haven't heard before on the podcast. Um, so you you said you've kind of you've worked in multiple different professional settings. Um, so what are some characteristics or things that stand out to you about a sports PT that make you think, huh, that's a really good sports PT? I, I like the way they communicate. I like the way they treat. What are some of those characteristics or those like non negotiables in a good sports PT? Oof, man, I feel like we're going through the interview process right here. Um, <laughs> You got to be a team player. Ultimately, if you're not a team player, I don't want to work with you, truthfully, because that's just what team sports is, right? If you're not a team player, if you're not, you know, acknowledging that you're a part of something bigger than you'll ever be, right? The team is always bigger. The sum of the team is always bigger than the individual parts. So I think if you're not about that, or if you have this ego that thinks uh, because I'm pro, I'm in pro sports, you know, I'm I'm the best and I'm the biggest, and you know, I need my voice heard. Just don't think those people tend to be successful or those people tend to last long. Um, so that's the first thing that comes to mind. Be a really good team player. And if you need any advice on that, you know, there's an author, Patrick Lencioni, who's got two books out there, The Ideal Team Player and, you know, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. I think those are really eye-opening to, you know, anyone that wants to be better at that component. I think that's some good, those are some good resources. So that's the first thing. Uh, clinically, you got to know your stuff, you know, and I think you just have to, you know, there's no way ifs, ands, or buts about it. You got to know your stuff um, orthopedically. But I also want to acknowledge you don't have to be the best because the cool thing about team sports is 
you have access to great orthopedic docs, orthopedic specialists. You have, you know, most athletes tend to want to get a second opinion. So even if you think you know the diagnosis, there's a good chance anyways, the athlete's going to go get a second opinion, which rightfully so, we should always consider that. So I think you have to be good at that, but also know that, hey, there's going to be opportunities to collaborate in areas if you aren't the expert and if you need some advice. So I think that's that's important. And then, I, you know, depending on the role, and I go back and forth on this, I think not necessarily super knowledgeable, but having an appreciation and understanding for one, the sport itself, right? Like I grew up playing soccer. My jump shot is terrible, but... <laughs> I think I've developed an appreciation, understanding of the sport enough that I know what these guys are going to have to do uh, at an NBA level. So having an understanding of where they have to get to, I think often helps the rehab process, help the practitioner understand what's going to be meaningful and practical for the athlete. And on the same note, having an appreciation, understanding of performance training, because ultimately that's going to be a part of what they do, whether it's rehab or not, like they're going to have to be in that weight room doing something performance-based. So if you're a PT, I think it serves you well to have an understanding, you know, foundational understanding. I don't think you need to go out and be the best strength coach and be, you know, a high-level basketball coach, but inevitably you're probably going to have conversations with a basketball coach. You're probably going to have conversations with a strength and conditioning coach. So from a communication perspective, I think it helps to know some of those things so that way you can have communication and speak the other's language right i think that's probably where you know that, to wrap up that thought is like we're all speaking the same language but you got to speak their dialect so expose yourself to those environments whether it's self-study or um getting in those environments i think that'll help uh you be successful gotcha i think that's uh that 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 the phrase, you know, we all speak the same language, but, you know, you need to speak the different dialects. You know, I always ask people that work in professional sports, you know, when you're talking to an athlete about their condition, it's got to be a little bit different when you're talking to the coach or when you're talking to the, the orthopedic surgeon, you know, you kind of are preaching the same message, but in a little bit different way to each person. So I think that's a really, you know, kind of good piece of advice for everybody that's listening. Kind of walk us through a day, in, uh, what it's like to be you, day in the life, let's say like a home game day, kind of what it's like from the time you get up to kind of when the game's wrapping up. Ooh, okay. Game day. Uh, longest days for us because we tend to have what's known as shoot around, our morning practice. So we will typically meet as a staff as early as, you know, an hour and a half to two hours before shoot around. So let's say shoot around's at 10 kind of in the building, you know, between eight and eight 30, uh, gearing up, just kind of mapping the th things out for the day. And then, you know, up until 10 AM, you're working with the players, whatever they need. It's kind of quiet. They're kind of in and out. There's usually not much to be done on a shoot around day. Um, given there's no rehab cases. If there's rehab, we try to <clears throat> get that done during the morning session because, you know, shoot around ends, you know, 11, 1130. Um, then, you know, you kind of have from, you know, 12 to three to yourself. And so you can use that time as you may. But, you know, if you do have a rehab case, maybe that's bleeding into some of that time. So then that, you know, early afternoon to mid afternoon is, you know, where I may try and take a nap, uh, relax, catch up on errands. It's kind of like your personal time. And then I'm heading into the arena, you know, 3.30, 4 o'clock, anywhere from, you know, three, three and a half hours before the game to get there to help out the pregame routine. Uh, you know, tip off happens. So then you watch the game and then game, you'll say it's seven o'clock tip off games ending nine 30, tend to get out of there anywhere between 10 30 and 11, pending what the post game looks like. So all in all, 
you know, in the building at 8 a.m., totally done at maybe 11 p.m. the latest. Uh, but you had that little mid-afternoon break. So that's a, that's a game day. With no travel, you know, if, we do, if we're flying out after the game, man, you're flying, you're driving to the airport to then catch on a flight. And if we're coming back to Phoenix, we typically land around, you know, 2, 2, gotcha. in the morning. Um, so, you know, you've been with the, with the Suns for a while now. Do you have anything that stands out like the most, any favorite memory about, you know, it could be moment on the court or it could be anything in your personal experience, like, you know, your kind of time in the clinic or in the, in the, in the training room? Uh Great question. I think the, you know, two, two memories come to mind. I think one is, you know, whenever you just have a long-term rehab case, you know, someone that's out several months, it's just always so rewarding and enjoyable when you see them get back out on the court and they're just, man, it's like, Oh, cool. Like we were a part of that journey and you did all the work, but we, we, we were there together and we, and we kind of helped. I'd like to, I'd like to think we, we helped, helped you get there. So that's, that's rewarding in itself. Um, individual sports moment, man, it was, I remember it was game one of the finals of 2020. And, you know, Chris Paul goes down with an injury and like the arena was deflated. And I remember going back in the locker room with him and then, you know, we made the decision he's going to go back and play. And I had this vivid memory. It's like out of the movies, like, I'm walking behind Chris as we come out of the tunnel and like he enters the spotlight as I'm like 10 feet behind him and the crowd just erupts. And it was just so like electrifying to just see what he means to the team and what he means to the city. That was just, I was just so cool to just be in that intimate moment, even just again, from afar, just watching it. was like, man, that's, that's just the beauty of sports. You know, you get to just see how an individual influences a team an environment a culture a city like there's no man it's hard to say there's any other environments in the world that can do that or situation that can do that it was pretty cool yeah i mean that sounds like it's something straight out of a a movie so pretty cinematic um and a pretty cool you know favorite memory um adam last question before we get you out of here again thank you for your time and your experiences i know you guys got uh camp starting in a couple days um do you have any advice for anybody that is an aspiring sports pt whether they are in PT school now or, you know, they just want to get to working with sports patients at a higher level, whether it's, you know, outpatient college or pro, what advice would you give to them? I think you got to get in the environment that you want to be in. Ultimately. Um, I think if you, you know, not working in a team setting or not working with an athlete, you know, it may hinder your ability to get in. Ultimately, like if I'm, if I'm going to the hiring process, right, at least maybe that's the best way to answer this question. If I wanted to hire you, what do I want to see? I want to see that you spent time exploring education opportunities beyond, you know, what PT school taught you. So for your young students, I think that goes back to if you were trying to set yourself a tier above, just not saying you have to have this exuberant amount of con ed courses because you don't also want to confound what you're learning in PT school because you've still got to pass the MPTE. Uh, But I think it (laughs) it shows me that you have a hunger for learning. So step one, I think for a young clinician, that's one thing I look at. For maybe someone that's, you know, one to three years out, I'm looking at your, you're, you're trying to seek out, you know, you may have to volunteer, you may have to work with a local high school, but it shows me that you're trying to get in the environments that you want to be in. And it may not be a grandioso performance or sports, excuse me, professional sports team, but it's showing that, hey, like I'm trying to get there. And then, you know, for the more, you know, 
experienced clinician, yeah, want to see that if you've been out three to five years that you've, you've found the right job opportunity for you to expose you to the athletes where you're not only managing the orthopedic clinical side, but you're having some influence on the performance training. Um, that's, those are some areas that I guess maybe across uh, different stages of a career, those are some things that, or advice for those that are in those areas that I would recommend given if I were to hire you, those are some things I'd want to see. Gotcha. I think that's great advice, you know, for clinicians at any, any point in their career that, you know, that's actionable and things that, that you can, you know, take into their, to their actual practice. Um, Adam, this has been great. You know, I think from your experiences in soccer and basketball and hearing kind of your, your cinematic moment in, in NBA history, um, this has been a great, uh, great talk. Do you have anything to plug before we get you out of here? Oh, no, not at all. I think, uh, you know, you can follow me on social media. Instagram is kind of where I live, uh, trying to be a bit more active on that this year and just connect with those in our profession a bit more. So I think, yeah, social media, you want to connect, reach out, happy to chat with y'all. All right, perfect. Um, again, Adam, thank you so much for your time. And this has been the latest episode of the Sports Rehab Experts Podcast. Huge thank you to the Director of Rehabilitation for the Phoenix Suns, Adam Loyacano, for coming on to the latest episode of the Sports Rehab Experts Podcast. If you liked what you heard or want to hear more episodes from great future guests, please like and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening. Oh.